0: This is Damon Albarn and you're listening to Hallelujah Monkeys, the number one gorillas podcast in the world.
1: Welcome to Hallelujah Monkeys for Monday, December 10th. My name is
2: Dylan Flynn and my name is Trevor Ickrath. Dylan, what are we what are we here to do today on this episode of Hallelujah Monkeys? Surely it's just going to be another normal episode, nothing special, right?
1: Today, Trevor, my intention is for you and I to strap on our flight helmets and goggles and to drop some motherfucking bombs
2: on the fandom. That's my plan, Trevor. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm always down to drop a good bomb on the fandom. How do you propose we do that? You got any ideas? Well, let's
1: see. When you think gorillas, you think great tunes, you think memorable characters and you think
2: well-thought-out lore,
1: epic rambling crazy stories. And today, we're finally after after pretty much since the inception of this podcast, we are finally sitting down with Gorilla's lore mastermind, Cass Brown, to to ask him, you know, generally, what the fuck? What's going on? What happened? What was this? What was that? And it's gonna it's all coming out today, Trevor.
2: And we're here. We're we we're finally sitting down with the boy himself, our golden boy.
1: But before before we roll into that interview, a couple of orders of business. So first I wanna let you know that our poll, our year and sort of Al Barnason's poll is still going strong. Be sure to get your your votes into uh, monkeys at gmail.com. Again, what we're looking for is for you to rank your 10 favorite songs between – the the humans cycle, so that includes the super deluxe and, and the bonus tracks of that, as well as sleeping powder, the the now now cycle and uh, and the good, the bad and the Queen's Maryland. So rank your ten favorite songs between all of those releases and projects.
2: I know I'm working on my list.
1: And then rank your, your favorite albums. You know a lot of the people who voted so far, Trevor, have been also ranking the the super deluxe as an album, so I guess you're free to do that too if that's your if that's how you feel,
2: go for it. Why not? Have a field day with it.
1: You know, gather your thoughts now and send them off. Howlumonkeys at gmail dot com. Also, please stay tuned for the end of uh, after this interview. If you live in tra within traveling distance of London, I have a proposition for you. So. <laughs> stay stay tuned until
2: after the interview yeah and you're gonna want to listen to the whole thing anyway because it's great it is
1: fucking wall to wall with insane shit and Cass was amazing and generous and so great and i can't wait for you to hear our conversation with him
2: so how about without further ado let's hear our interview with the one and only Cass brown Oh my gosh! The the prodigal son returns. You know, Cass, we did a, a whole
1: season, somewhat early on in the podcast, that was just this deep dive into the lore of the band, and <laughs> I really felt like by the end of that season, we had formed a very special bond with you, and so it's so great to finally be able to talk to you and ask you all these questions.
2: Yeah, in a way, after all, all after all that exploration, you were you kind of became our favorite gorilla.
1: Ah, well, I'm sure that can't be true. No, it's something we've we've said many times on the show, and we'll hold to it. And something else you might not believe, but this is definitely the interview that we are asked about most by our listeners. Already?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, by far. You're the guy who holds all the secrets.
3: I don't know if I've got all the answers. <laughs> I've got some of them, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a convoluted story, isn't it? It sure is.
1: It sure is. Let's, let's try to let's try to get a little of
2: it uh, right off the bat here. Yeah, before we even get into any of the lore or anything like that, we wanted to talk about the uh, recording side of the band. So uh, we. We, we wanted to ask how involved you were with the recording of the first album. Like, we've heard that the album had more live drumming before Dan the Automator got involved. Would you be able to uh, paint us a clearer picture of what it was like?
3: Yeah, well, I wasn't involved in the, in the first album. Um, I think Dave Ramsey from Blair, um I think Dan used was his drums in that.
0: Um,
3: I kind of came in more through my friendship with uh with jamie and um uh matt Wakem, who's who's uh at gorillas at the time right uh, both of those really friends of mine from from wording and i you know jamie as you probably know kind of he used to do a lot of the uh, the sleeves for one of my old bands Things. Simple things of course yeah and um the first time i went over to to the studio they used to have a so Jamie and Damon both had a studio over at a place called uh, Conrad Street in Kensal Rise, and uh, Jamie's was upstairs, Damon's was downstairs, and I kind of, you know, the album was completed and mixed and mastered by the time I was involved, and um, I kind of, I went over to see Jamie, and um, and then I got a call from Damon, just about the the live side of it. Really, a lot of that kind of is in bananas, I think. Carrie's documentary.
1: Well that that makes me even
2: more curious, Cass, about cause isn't there, Trevor, a, a, a credit that you and I Yeah, on one of the phase one B sides, the sounder, you actually have a uh producer credit. We were kinda hoping you would be able to tell us like uh the story behind that. Like what's the story of your involvement with that
3: song? Oh yeah. Um i can't even remember what that was for i think it might I, I know it came out on the on the d was it d sides or g sides g sides yeah um that was myself and damon actually just playing about in the studio but um largely he kind of he went on and um and you know we were just suggesting stuff i think it was around the same time that that the uh the d12 track no kidding yeah d12 As as an outfit, they came over to record on that. Damon had kind of two basic backing tracks. And again, I've got producer credit on that one, but um, on the 911, but in my recollection, they came out of a similar period, similar kind of time of just being in the studio suggesting stuff.
1: The thing that makes that that timeline so curious, Cass, is that. The, the song The Sounder actually reuses the bass line from Rock the House, which so for many years the fans have kind of assumed that Rock the House grew out of The Sounder, but it actually sounds like it was vice versa. Oh, no,
3: no, no. Rock, yeah, Rock the House was, I mean, you know, um, that, that album was already kind of done. I got played it. I think well, Jamie played it to me and I was like, you know, I was like a lot of people. My first thing was like, fucking this is great. You know, this is really good. Um, I just loved how warm the sound was. And, you know, I love the feel of it. I mean, there was little bits of kind of um, dub and bits of clash in there and kind of, it was a very West London album, I think. And um, I, I think he was bullshitless of, uh, of kind of, presenting himself as, as a front man in blur.
2: Of being the star.
3: Yeah, of, of being the focus. You know, so it was really liberating. And myself, I mean, I've been in quite a few bands beforehand, and the idea of being involved in someone where you couldn't see people, you know, and you could, you could say all the stupid shit you wanted to in interviews without actually kind of, waiting, <laughs> you know, without actually waking up in a panic attack going, Oh my God, I'm a terrible person.
2: Yeah, I I know getting around the interviews was a big motivation behind the whole Gorillas project.
1: Yeah, for sure, an escape from the tabloid life of the whole Blur Oasis thing too. You know, Cass, uh, you mentioned Matt Wakem, uh, yeah. who I know began the project as the official writer of the band, but I've I've never been clear kind of when his control over the writing of the band ends and yours begins. I know that there was some crossover, and you both worked on, like, the Gorilla Bites, and you co-wrote and co-directed Chart of Darkness together, yeah. so what, w- was Matt initially solely responsible? Like, for example, did you, did you do any writing on the Apex Tapes interview? When did you start getting involved? No,
3: nah, I, I wasn't involved in the Apex Tapes stuff, and, and it's funny enough, I've never actually heard them, uh, you know, I, I think I've tried to find a file. But, um, yeah, myself and Matt, as I said, we were, we were really old friends from, from kind of back in Worthinggate. And uh, when I first went to see Jamie and Matt, I didn't even know really how the, uh, lineage of the kind of the, the writing, uh, whether or not it came from Jamie or came from Matt. I mean, it, the, the style of it really, just, you know, which it still reminded me of of course, of all the kind of Tanko and of Jamie's other stuff, but you know, I didn't know it was specifically one or the other or both of them or whatever. And, um, and then I remember there was an evening, after we'd done one of the live uh, live rehearsals, and we, my, us four, were sitting around Damon and Jamie, Matt and myself, and it was like an interview needed to be done, and. Uh, And I just went, I'll have a crack at that because I've done a million interviews and also I just like, um, like, you know, the idea of kind of, to be honest, at that stage was just kind of pissing about and and saying kind of awkward things and kind of, and the interaction between the characters and it was, you know, it was a great, it was a great outlet and then myself and Matt, I remember we used to do, we either used to split the interviews up or we would get together and kind of race through them and, uh, ostensibly trying to make each other laugh, I guess. That led to the gorilla bites, which we kind of, we changed kind things. Of and then we did the Charts of Darkness thing. We definitely want to talk
1: about Charts of Darkness, but before before we do, I think it's important to, to establish something. I, I believe I've heard, and this could be totally, you know, Rumor and fancy, but I feel like I've heard that there was some kind of a falling out with Matt and the partnership, and that's why he left. Can you speak to that? Do you know why Matt ultimately stopped writing for the
3: band? You know what? Um, I, I'm not. I'm not being a politician here, but I am saying that I don't really know the ins and outs of that. Um, I know. I know there was a kind of. Th- 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 was a really big, really kind of full on and really demanding thing, and it was brilliant and it is brilliant. But it's, uh, you know, at the time, I think that a lot of people felt I mean, there was a lot, a lot of work, and uh, and uh, maybe people just kind to of get tired and burn out, and, you know, at certain points. I, I couldn't really comment on it because the thing is, is I didn't. Uh, Matt kind of left, I didn't know whether or not he, he had left or kind of Jamie said, yeah, it's not working out. I don't really know, all I know is that around the kind of beginning of Demon Days, I was suddenly the only writer and I was like, okay, you, you know and I think we started with the I think, actually no, we started with a, a booklet uh, Return of the Ogre I think um, and uh, which was a kind of internal Story catching up where the band been, and then kind of the first thing I did on on the Demon Day thing I think was the We Are the Jury, it was, it, because that kind of that kind of came out as a long fucking two hour interview and. Um, I hadn't heard the Apex thing before but um, so, so I kind of just wrote how I would write it, and like uh, write an interview and as you can probably hear by myself Murdoch kind of share a similar thing of just talking <laughs> and talking and fucking talking <laughs> and then only when someone interrupts do we stop
1: it's it's a better I gotta tell you Dury versus Apex tapes it's really no contest Dury is the classic for yeah sure. it's
2: such a it's it's so much more fleshed out in terms of who the characters are and how they interact interact with each other. Oh, good. Before we talk about like the phase two writing though, let's, let's talk real quick about charts of darkness because Don and I both see that as such a weird, interesting parallel version of the story where the band is fictional, but Damon and Jamie are delusional and believe they really exist. And throughout the years, it was, it's kind of seemed like Damon and Jamie like played along with the concept of the band less and less. Did you have an opinion about that at the time?
3: The Charts of darkness thing, you wouldn't believe how fast that was put together. Uh, I got asked to go to a meeting, um, I think with, um, someone from channel four, possibly someone from days TV, myself and Matt, I think Jamie might be there. Um, but I didn't really know what it was. All I'd known is that there was the, there was the opportunity or had been the opportunity for a while to do a gorillas half hour show. And, um, you know, I think I read a script that, that, that was a fully animated one, and I think that that kind of hit the dust, because, um... Expensive? It, you know, expenses and time, and maybe the script wasn't that funny or whatever. I don't know. I, guess, um, I got asked kind of just to sit in on this meeting, at which this kind of... Oh, yeah, we'll, you know, go away, write something, and we'll start it. Myself and Matt put that script together. Uh, I think it was three days, start to finish. And, um... Suddenly, it was kind of there was shoot, shooting days involved, like the book. But I, I know that the entire timeline from the first meeting to it actually being aired was something like seven, eight weeks. Wow, what what a turnaround! <laughs>
1: yeah,
3: so it actually got aired just before Christmas, I, I believe. But the um, but it was so fast, which is why uh, in there. You've got uh, Phil Cornwall, who does the voice of Murdoch, obviously. Of course. Um, he, he, he plays the cop. He plays the, the nurse. Yeah, is in there.
2: He's a man of many talents.
3: Yeah, he's not only a man of many talents, but there was a lot of times where we just went, we need some something here. And it's not like there was time to cast someone else or, or kind of look for anyone else. So we just went, can we, Phil, can we stick a big, uh, a wig on you here? I think I think Remy's in there a couple of times as uh, as. As, as Jamian and Remy is um, Jamian. Remy is Jamian. Interesting. <laughs>
0: Great. Yeah.
1: We
3: were wondering when we watched it. We're
1: big fans of Jamian. Jamian is is, is has been the source of much t- debate and
3: conversation in our
1: friendship. Yeah,
3: I can smell them. <laughs> My understanding of it is it was the composite character of their both the evil part, of their psyche. That was I remember that that was something. myself a that. We went to some costume place and kind of found the most kind of awful 18th century kind of outfit for someone, something marky to side but a little bit kind of rickets and just a horrible kind of fucking, fucking <laughs> perfumed um, yeah. wig. And we were like, I think both me and Matt both tried the costume on for shits and giggles. Yeah, Remy had that. And I, I remember kind of, you know, filling the place with smoke and myself and, and, and Jamie and Matt just pissing ourselves kind of trying to make this kind of the creepiest sort of cutaway it was quite a lot of work out of all the things in that scene, <laughs> there was a lot of attention on that one kind of little contra-zoom shot where it zooms up. Essentially for four seconds of screen time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I gotta I got say, though, re- remembering watching Charts of Darkness for the first time as was like a 16-year-old, G- the Jamie and Cutaways were like the biggest laugh-out-loud moments for me.
3: Yeah, I liked it. I think he should have got his own show. Oh. <laughs> it was evil, you know. But, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of other bits in there. There's a, there's a bit where Jamie's down through his influences uh, in the characters. And there's this kind of montage of of different influences.
2: Right, I think he says, like, a couple stormtroopers, a baddie from Scooby-Doo.
3: Yeah, that's it, yeah. I think the budget on just clearing those for a 20-second gag, in which we deliberately cut all of the images to the wrong things that he was saying. So I think a baddie from Scooby-Doo kind of is a picture of Keith (laughs) Richards. I didn't even realize that. You know, and it's just all the influences, like, if you look at it, it's like, deliberately we're choosing the most inappropriate things. But the, the, just the, the price of clearing those pictures was eye-watering, you know, for that for that lo- one little joke. And we were like, well, you know, sometimes you might do it, you know? Yeah. Terrific. I love it. There was a lot of free reign with that kind of stuff. I mean, the, the voice at the end, you've got Jamie and in silhouette and being interviewed. And the voice you hear... Damon's saying kind of something about kind of disinformation or whatever. And uh, that, that's the voice we cut in the voice of Junior Dan. Oh,
0: cool. In the, the
3: bass player. You can recognize Damon's outline, of course, and... Because you you know it's them two. But we were going to do Jamie's voice as Jamie, you know, his one, and then re-voice all of Damon's um, interview with Junior Dan's voice. (laughs) It got vetoed, man. You know, we weren't allowed. So I don't know. That was one step too far. Yeah, but I, you know, all those kind of ideas. You know, there was so much stuff that we were allowed to kind of completely roll with, which is, which is fun. And we got, I think, the, the head of EMI, Tony Wadsworth, He kind of did a straight interview, and then at the end, kind of said uh, some lines. That we fed him about kind of, you know, that he doesn't care about Jamie and Damon's mental health, just as long as they're, uh, you know, selling records and then we dubbed a little round of applause in there music industry.
1: <laughs> you know, while we're kind of on this topic of, like, a, t- a time when Damon was kind of willing to play ball with the goofier side of the project, there's a song that has been a, a, a source of much confusion and speculation over the years, and that song is... Uh, Murdoch is God, the Phase yeah. 2 B side. Yeah. What on earth is the story behind that? It's so hard for me to imagine Damon writing something that kind of in universe.
3: Uh, I don't know. I think that might have been something. I might be wrong here, but I think it might have been written specifically for the website. Um, and then it came out great. And then they used it somewhere else, but I think that that was the timeline of that, which was you know because David did do loads of stuff like the the the, the beginning of the uh, Gorilla Bites that kind of wow 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 yeah you that. know yeah that's something you put together as a kind of fun little thing so a signature tune for that and it's kind of a bit Grange Hill you know it's, uh, you know the, the, there was loads of little stings and stuff whenever there was. Um, Little fun bits of fairground music needed and stuff for a kind of you know a list part. I think Murdoch's God is using in the list in the website somewhere, yeah, the
1: baseline and everything. yeah, yeah and and, and it's 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 not unlike the sounder rock the house relationship. The chord progression gets kind of repurposed for "O Green World" on "Demon Days" as well. You know, it's so it's just funny for me to imagine kind of serious artist Damon Albarn making you know guerrillas jingles for the websites and for the cartoons. But it's it's cool to know that he was kind of willing to play ball in that way. I
3: don't think it was just him being willing to play ball. I think it was his ball. You know, I think uh, <laughs> that was the fun of it. I thought with everyone, everyone was kind of. I'd never been a writer before, and I just thought this is great. Uh, you know, I'm really into this. It's really creative. It's really liberating. And and fuck me, you know, half the stuff that came out in the interviews, if we, if if a real human had said that stuff, there'd be a lot of trouble. And that was like a kind of oh wow, it was really interesting to see. I think I wrote one interview. Uh, things like the the Microsoft and the three G. Um, mobile, free mobile adverts and stuff like that is is largely the people who were kind of just uh, getting involved with this as a kind of it'd be great to get gorillas involved really left everything kind of go and you know and and just put the ball completely in 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 our hands and i remember
1: that motorola commercial is a is a fucking nightmare cast that is a yeah that's a wild surrealist trip. bizarre moment of capitalism meeting
3: art yeah i mean it's basically terry jones isn't it it's uh, from monty python kind of where he, he plays of the piano piano naked but i mean i think didn't we didn't we put the the, the phone down the front of his pants or the back of his pants?
2: It was definitely touching his ass. <laughs> yeah, it was in yeah. that G-string he was wearing.
3: Yeah, it wasn't in the yep. back at the beginning. It was somewhere else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it went off, and it was very muffled. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah, and I remember another thing we did for to, to, to Microsoft back in about 2010. And I wrote a, a script, and it was kind of, it was like taking you through the Microsoft, the IE9, or the you know, uh, fly through of the new website, and they had their lawyers go through the entire script. The only thing that they went, could you take that out?" was a reference to murder, like in, starting the day with a Bronson's cocktail, and a, uh, a Bronson's cocktail is well, it's basically combination of morphine and codeine and cocaine and just all just everything and it uh, I, I kind of i nicked that out of a aerosmith walk this way um biography when they, you know, and, but I mean it's something that they use for people on the brink of death to, to kind of you know ease the pain and uh, and the only thing that the lawyers said yeah this is all great about the satanism and the speed this, this is all great. can you take the bronxian cocktail out and it's like, that's fine
0: <laughs> that's a pretty
1: cool corporate censor that's yeah. a pretty hip corporate censor yeah google it it's, uh, it's quite a mix <laughs> maybe we'll make one for the show and sample it on the air
2: it'll be a lot of fun yeah um,
1: I'd have
3: a parasitic close. You know, I think nowadays they're quite strong, you
2: know? Well, Dylan, should we ask Cass about the abandoned 2002 Gorillas movie? I know we had some questions about that. We sure do. We sure do. Would you be do. able to share anything with us from the production of that whole project? Like uh, a script or treatment or anything? What was that movie, even?
3: <sighs> there was a long sigh. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, gosh, fucking hell. Uh, yeah, there's... It, Myself and Jamie wrote something. Jamie <coughs> came with an idea and, uh, and we kind of sat there in his place and his house. I can't remember if it was like three, four, five months or whether it was 17, 18 years, but it felt like a long time. And, and it, uh, that was the original Celebrity Arbor. Of which I I have many many boxes and you know, and printouts of that and uh, yeah it was it was basically the you know it, it was about a, a a boil on your head. That basically was um, celebrities were when their egos got too big, and it kind of right, just like uh, you described yeah. in Rise of the Ogre. Yeah, I mean Rise of the Ogre it is God, You know that, that's an amalgam. Again, I mean start to finish, that book was written, start to finish, and went to print in three months.
1: Three months. Yeah, that's insane. That's insane. I got it. I, I got so many Ogre questions, but I got to double back to this to this yeah. film first. So. Was the initial pitch that Jamie brought to the table about this boil on your head that was engorged by
3: your ego? Yeah, yeah,
1: it was, and it was. um,
3: He'd written a lot of things for it, you know, that that visually looked. You could imagine how they look. They look great, even in your head. They look. You will go, oh, yeah, that's going to really work. But script writing is very, very difficult. As I'm sure anyone would say. Well, I think the original draft came in at 360 pages, which is, I think, what Jesus, oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Jesus yeah. Christ! it came in at six hours, and not, you know, I, I, the, the, the the usual rule of thumb is kind of a page of script is a, is a minute of screen time. Minute
1: of screen time. Yeah, yeah,
3: so this thing came in oh at kind of God. six hours, and uh, yeah, I think the whole thing felt slightly opiumated. Um, were gorillas in this movie? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, all of them were. Uh, but it was, it was. I mean, of course, Murdoch's the one who's going to get the boil. But the gorillas characters were playing themselves. Were right? were playing actors. Sorry. They, you know, there was bits of. It was bits of band stuff, but they, they they were still I don't know because there was another draft after that with a different story, uh, which was along the lines of uh, record labels killing off their own. Bands in order to kind of sell uh, their back catalogue, so they don't have to keep paying the artists, and they use the, the celebrity artist name.
2: So it sounds like the Gorillas movie was never really about gorillas or the story of the band. It was just going to be a movie that kind of made sense for these four characters to be in.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah, it wasn't
3: about the formation. It wasn't. It wasn't the kind of. Um, origin story. It was much more kind of like a a, a narrative rather than the band's Kind of the band themselves kind of being a band and all the boring shit that goes on in being a band.
2: It wasn't a gorillas movie. It was really just a movie starring gorillas. Yeah,
3: kind of, yeah.
1: Was Damon's intention to write music for this movie? To write songs to be in this movie?
3: I think that was always the the thing. He wasn't really involved in the um, in the script side of it. Uh he, he kind of, you know left that to Jamie and and then myself. Did he ever start
1: to, to generate material for the movie? Did any of that stuff turn into
3: anything else or what was uh, I don't know specifically, but I do think that Demon Days very much came out of the kind of ideas that he was thinking, you know, areas he had gone into. Some of the celebrity artist images kinda of ended up in, in in the Demon Days world. And then consequently, kind of, you know, ideas ended up in the character of these four um, demon days. And then a whole bunch of it got collected into into the Rise of the Ogre thing. But then loads got kind of taken out and rewritten in order to make it work.
1: Cass Brown, what do I need to do to get my hands on this 300-page draft of this movie? Do I need to barter? Do I need to
3: beg? You need a time (laughs) machine because you've got to wait until... Everyone involved is dead. Oh! <laughs> because I think that's the, only, that's the only way that's coming out. Let's shift
2: gears to talking about uh, Rise of the Ogre, though, because that kind of remains the Bible of Gorilla's lore. And we were wondering, how much input did Jamie let you have over what went into that book, and how much creative like freedom were you given? Well,
3: total, really. The original idea, I remember we first started talking about it before the Harlem Apollo shows what the idea was, was I kind of just went, it'd be really nice to kind of do it like, not like an annual, like a gorilla's annual, but a collection book of just scripts and ideas and this and that and photos. And I just like, oh man, it'd be great to do something like that. And then, it was to do with kind of the collection. I, my pitch was, let's collect all the interviews that, that have been out there because a lot of people don't know them and don't see them and collect all the kind of scripts and bits. Like, and an,
1: like an omnibus, essentially.
3: Yeah. And then, and then Jamie was, like, into it, and, uh, and he kind of um, said, look, you know, any pictures that you want to use, just, just use them. And, you know, to, to, to kind of go in the chronological order of how you want to do it. Uh, and then, you know, when I picked a bunch, he, he went through and said, well, not that one, or I'll give you a new one there. It just made more sense not to have just a, a random collection of interviews. It kind of felt like you needed to tell who, who the band is, which you were, how they came together, you know, and just like there's that fold-out of uh, of uh, Murdoch's base, which, you know, just having that, just having that one thing... You know, made made the whole production cost go up, but that came from a book that I had on the the Stones years ago. That was actually kind of a blueprint of how to build Pete Richards' guitar. And I was like, oh, if we can manipulate that into having a bit of Murdoch pace, that'd be that'd be wonderful. Oh, so cool! Well, what are we going to do with the flip side? And I went, oh, we could do a musical, uh, an influence of kind of the musical thing. Uh, you know, all, the all the band map. I love yeah, that. Yeah, that is that's, that's one so of my good, favorite eh? parts of the book. Thank you. There was also that thing of just going. If I was a kid, or I was younger, or even if I was the age I was at now, it'd be lovely to see kind of all all the bands that kind of went into kind of the sound, or just just being able to go, I've never heard of this band and check them out. Yeah, when we were
2: reviewing Ogre, we like really went in on that on those two pages, even like like tracing all the lines and seeing like which bands Two D Noodle and Russell were into, which bands Murdoch wasn't into. It was laid out in a very interesting, fascinating way. (laughs) It was. I think it's a testament that you had such a good handle over those
1: characters and their distinct perspectives and personalities. I can't get over the fact that this book came together in three months, Cass. Are you you okay?
2: Yeah, it it felt like it took us three months just to talk about it. (laughs)
3: Well, no, I, I was I was massively helped in that. I mean, there was there was Jamie's studio, Zombie. The Tube's map itself is designed by Tim Rockins, who works with Tim Rockins now. And uh, you know, uh, the, the layouts were done for the book were done by Kate uh, McLaughlin. and. Uh, and basically, you know, Jamie was, you know, every time he went, have you got uh, something where, I don't know, where they smashed up a hotel room. Right? You know, a day later, he had produced produce this kind of fucking wonderful, I was like, you know, they, they, they try to write film scripts and it didn't work out. That was very much a kind of my own way of just going, Jesus Christ, what we've just been through to, to get this script, which is now going in a drawer. That's that, that hotel room that he drew in Rise of the Ogre. That was the inside of my head. Nadja, who worked uh, on the Gorillaz Press stuff, she was writing with me. And, you know, we would hopefully get, like, two, three pages down of of kind of information, text, and, and dates, you know, making sure that all the kind of record dates and record sleeves and everything, every detail was kind of perfect. So that when you got it and you verified it about the gigs that they did play or the release dates or the catalog numbers that every single thing was as real as it could be and then make the fiction sit on top of that.
2: It sounds like a grueling, demanding process. It
3: so does. That's where the Brompton's cocktails come in. That's when you've got to use them. (laughs) Uh, you can you can do anything as well as start the day with one of those. Uh, you
1: mentioned overlaying the fiction on top of of the reality, and there's one moment in that book where there's this like fictional lawsuit from a, a band called Doppelgangers who are suing Gorillas <laughs> for stealing their idea. Yeah, and our theory is that this is a reference to that Kevin Saunders. Monkey Tennis, Gorilla Stole My Idea lawsuit. Can you confirm or deny that you were having a bit of fun with that?
3: Well, you've only just reminded me of that.
2: Everybody forgets about the whole Monkey Tennis thing.
3: I don't know if that was a reference. Maybe it was. Maybe it was. But if if I put that in the doppelganger thing as a dig, there's, there's probably... Yeah, I don't remember it, but there's probably a little bit of kind of going, how how did this band get here? What would happen with the band? And a lot of the incidences that happened in that Rise of the Ogre are very much, they're just slightly smokescreened things of a real event.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, for example, I know that Junior Dan got arrested when he came into the States, and that kind of got transferred over to Murdoch Nichols. Here's here's another minute detail that I don't know if you'll remember, but I— would not forgive myself if I didn't ask from Rise of the Ogre. It's
2: driving us crazy.
1: Okay, so on page 224 of Rise of the Ogre, there's this, they're in the middle of this discussion about deciding to make a second Gorillaz album. And Russell is talking about how if you did it once, it would only be a gimmick. But for some reason, his name next to the line of dialogue, instead of just saying Russell, it says great big chubby round russell and there's no kind of joke around it referencing his weight so it just kind of comes out of nowhere and we've just we we've driven ourselves
3: insane thinking
1: about this can you can you help
3: us don't don't overthink that one that 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 was uh, the very last thing that happened when we were putting the. The um the book to laying out all the pages and putting it into print is can you capture uh, caption the the pictures and I remember there's you know I'd read in order to kind of do this I'd reference loads of um, biography books and books that I really liked and we'd use them as references and there was. Um uh, in cold blood which is Johnny Thunders biography written I think, by Nina Antonia it's, uh, i always liked the fact that you had these pictures and Johnny Thunders just kind of just put his captions underneath them but when it came to it something that i thought would be really easy after a while it's a bit like that bit in clockwork orange you know where he's in the bed and they're showing him pictures and he goes uh, just say the first thing that comes into your head you know i i um i would like to take those eggs and smash them and pick them all you know he's like literally going uh, yeah no time for the old in out in out i've got a you know I, because he's saying the first thing to what came out of his head. And that where that came from. I was just like, I don't know, just great big background, (laughs) Chubby Russell, next. You know, there was nothing in it, nothing. It was totally blank. Love it, chaos, I love it. Yeah. You know, there's another caption, I think, where Russell's in there, and there was the line underneath it that said, I can see clearly now his mind has gone, right? And to this day, after the print, I was like, No man, that should have said. Ike can see clearly now. His brain has gone because that was worked better with the the song. Yeah, it it, don't keep me up. I'll be (laughs) all right.
1: That's a new edition. We need a new. We need a new print so that you can fix it. Yeah, just
2: that. Yeah. While we're on the subject of Russell, he's often seen as getting kind of like the short end of the stick as far as representation of the band members and the lore goes. How do you feel about that assessment? Do you like? Do you did you find Russell harder to write than the other guys, or did you wish you
3: had done more with the character? I tell you what. I mean, when it came to actually kind of doing interviews. There was a combination of a lot of things had to be done really, really fast because you would suddenly get a can you, can you write this overnight? And it's like, yeah, it's a 2,000 word interview. And they're like, yeah, but we need it by seven because it's got to go out. And you're like, fuck. You know, so Murdoch was the easiest to write. It just came out that way. I mean, because he was the gobbiest. It's like in most bands, you've got one guy who's just really just won't shut up and, uh, and has got an opinion on anything. So... He, by default, in those things came up, you know, but I think the actual, the, the, the balance of the characters, I think, is is brilliant. At the time, you had kind of Noodle, who was very, very quiet and probably the smartest of the whole bunch. Her kind of femininity and patience and zen-like thing, coupled with the ability to play an extraordinary kind of Jackson Pollock guitar, you know, it's like amazing and then you've got kind of 2D, who's who's pretty and calm and you know it's, it's he's probably the one that all the girls kind of would go for he's the lead singer he's he's pretty he's pretty vacant and that's balanced with kind of you know they've got Russell who is who is probably the only real musician in the band he he's he's someone who really understands it. and but he's he brings a whole kind of different sensibility and weight and gravity to you know and then you got Murdoch who's um you know, he's what you see. I mean he's he's all the rotten bits of everything And but, you know, he's he's there's a real heart in there somewhere. You know, might be down in his pants, but it's definitely in there, and, you know, it's just full of fucking desire, and he's full of need, and urgency, and kind of jealousy, and rage, and I, I, the, the potential to kind of really open up those the dynamics bef- between the four, because they all, ostensibly like most bands, there's falling outs and this and that, and, but they come together, and they create this thing that's better than all of them, so there's a, you know, the, the, the characters, I think, were really, really well balanced.
1: You've hit on something here, Cass, you've, you've definitely hit on something here, and I think that that what you're talking about, that balance, is part of why it was kind of so painful that the phase three story never really ended with the true reuniting of all the characters. Now, I want to I get into that sort of phase three era, yeah. but I, I want to talk about that that little interim, that Venn diagram of lore, because that's another thing that people have talked about a lot. So so in, in the end of Rise of the Ogre... They give one read of what happens to Noodle in the El Mignano video, which is basically that Murdoch arranged to fake Noodle's death in order to kill Jimmy Manson, and (laughs) Noodle was was in on it, and now she's off on holiday somewhere, and then by the start of phase three, you know, it's been kind of retconned and changed, now... Noodle's really missing, Murdoch maybe wasn't actually involved with the El Manana disaster, and, and there's all, or maybe he was, but it's unclear, and it's all kind of, you know, the reset button was head, hit a bit. I was wondering if you could take us through that decision to change that and, and where that came from.
3: Um, <laughs> um, okay, the El Manana video was completely made before Rise of the Over. And had nothing to do with that story.
2: <laughs> just the, it was just visuals and dr- and drama and sturm. The and whole drang. Jimmy Manson thing was manufactured afterwards. Sturm and drang.
3: Yeah, I think it was a, it was um, you know Jamie, Jamie kind of wrote that. He you know he, he would write the kind of theme in the storyboards for all all the the videos. <laughs> the only reason why that kind of whole double you know espionage. Murdoch trying to kill people off da, da 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 was literally to you know that that she was just to make the book work. That was something that I wrote myself and and then uh, you know I would go, does this kind of work? I essentially there was always kind of three things going on, which is you know, Jamie's artwork, Jamie the the things that Jamie would want to put across and and then you know, Damon's music which he wouldn't really cross-reference with Jamie. He would just do the thing he needed and wanted to, to create. And, and then I would try post those pictures and the artwork to try and kind of stick to them together. To weave all together. Yeah, and right. see if I could make something that felt cohesive. So when it came to the plastic beach stuff, there was a lot of kind of nights of kind of talking about general things, you know, but essentially, again, it wasn't until they were coming up and running and Jamie went, we're going to do this, and these these are the kind of images we've got, and this is what we've got, and uh, we've got this cyborg noodle, and it was like, well, it didn't really relate to the last um, story at all. Yeah, but then, I mean, the plastic Beach thing was, I think, because I had a bigger run-up at it, I think, um, I got really into kind of the idea, of the mythology of the plastic beach thing and kind of trying to kind of put something really rich out in terms of story. Other writers that I've kind of read and ripped off and, you know, bits of Kurt Vonnegut and bits of this and kind of dystopian, the island, the main uh, thing of the island being this kind of swirling massive garbage. And it's like, well, maybe it's the garbage of war, of, you know, every time kind of mankind progresses, In any technological way, you know, the first thing that the guy fucking invented the wheel or invented the arrow, it was, you know, basically chawled it around to the next village and fire arrows off the back of it. The kind of evolution and development and progression of technology is is the progression of war. And, you know, that's why we've got... Gortex and Saint is because
1: and war creates
3: incredible,
1: unfathomable amounts of waste. So that also makes yeah, sense. Yeah,
3: and that that was the thing. That was the thing. It's like, well, maybe if you go underneath the island, it's just like old Roman chariots and biplanes and tanks and just fucking the entire history of war. Kind of. Oh, that's so cool. That is so cool. And then out of that came the fact that well. Yeah, maybe maybe Murdoch's like this kind of uh, Zelig character, or maybe he's like this kind of, just this, this, you know, we call him an immortalist that that he had been kind of going through time, not even for his own knowledge, out of his own self knowledge, for some reason he was just kind of constantly kind of being reincarnated or never dying or just being in, in a bit of that kind of um, sympathy for the devil. Thing. It's just like he's always peeing around at the worst, most pivotal events. You know, you don't know whether or not he's a kind of Luciferian kind of character. who has been kicked out, kicked out of heaven or hell or whatever, you know, in order to kind of, well, there's a, a point of centrality of kind of everything is swirling. That's why this, is, this speech is being kind of collected. It's everything's swirling into this single point. And then... There was the Book of Man, which was on the island. Now,
1: the Book of Man, the only, I think the only in-canon references to the Book of Man might have been on the Gorilla's website and in the Murdoch Pirate Radio uh, show, and th- very little is known about what the Book of Man <laughs> even is, so we're, we're, we're hoping that you can you can shine
3: some light on that. Well, I'll tell you what light I can shed on it, it's the fact that I've just moved down my old home, and I found a Sent the script to it about a week ago, and, uh, oh, holy shit! Yeah.
2: So, so what can you tell us about the Book of Man? I
3: was just going to because I found it. Okay, so these are the chapter tales. Chapter one: the Big Bang, history of creation of the universe, black holes, dark matter, primordial soup. That's a good place to start. Um, and then, oh my god! Uh, chapter two: Earth. Chapter three was fire, the wheel, and the gun, religion, magic, and the beginning of fame. Then Romans and Greeks, Middle Ages, Industrial Revolution, British Empire, America and the Rise of the West, World Wars One and Two, Chapter 10, Punk Rock, <laughs> 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 everything, all the time, forever. Chapter 12, The Plastic Beach, and Chapter 13, The End of Days. But, you know, um, I'm not going to read the whole bloody thing, actually, but basically it was just from the Big Bang, everything being so enormous and getting smaller smaller and more aggressive and more about war and more about disaster and in the last 20th century from kind of managing to kind of fly to putting up wires to now having internet and email and it's faster, faster, faster and faster and faster and so the last thing was if you stitched together all the parts of the map on the island you would have the last chapter chapter 13 at which point we would reveal that that plastic beach was actually just the top of a plug <laughs> and with a little chain that went underneath it all the way down to the bottom of the ocean, and there'd be a little plug. And then chapter 13, when it was red, would undo that plug, and everything on Earth and the cosmos and the universe would spin down into this central little plug point at the bottom of the ocean.
1: Oh, my wow. God. <laughs> wow. Cass, my,
3: my head is spinning. Yeah. This is incredible. Well, it worked with, with murder because, of course, there's a moment of realization where he goes, I fucking knew it. I knew it. This has all been about me. The entire history of creation, <laughs> the, you know, the history of the fucking universe, the history of the Big Bang dinosaurs, all the oceans, everything was leading up to this point where it would be revealed just how important Murdoch Nichols was. Very Murdoch.
1: And it turns out, of course, that that M-A-N, the Book of Man, I'm assuming, are his, his initials.
3: Yes, Murdoch Alphonse Nichols.
1: That's amazing, Cass. I mean, I know that, again, like you said, we need to time travel to go ahead in time <laughs> until everybody's dead, but... This sounds like your masterpiece. I I wish I could I wish I could read this. It's a, it sounds incredible. Well, no, it was all
3: you know, At the end of the Placid Beach tour, I think there was always meant to be a, a second album, and that's and we kind of talked about doing a, a Rising Over two, uh, and I wrote all the the kind of pitch documents for it so that you know we we could we could actually kind of do it. Had a huge kind of thing it collected or everything to do with plastic beach, and that was all. That was that was in there, all that kind of stuff. And uh, the book I think was going to be called um, "Under a Hail of Plastic Bullets." Under a hail of
2: plastic what? Bullets. Bullets. Yeah. Under a hail of plastic bullets.
3: <laughs> yes, I think Jamie's Jamie's kind of sketch videos, Ryan's eyes, Ryan's eyes, and kind of, you know, uh, and some of the other things that didn't get kind of completed. Um, they tell a slightly different story. So there was always kind of anomalies of what I was kind of writing and what he was putting out. And he wanted to, it, uh, it's led by the music and it's led by the artwork and the, the stories and that thing is always like a, separate world you
2: know so do you know what jamie was trying to do during that phase like uh, the fan base has always really wondered what was uh what was supposed to happen after noodle and russell arrived on the island and who was that boogeyman character is there any can you flesh that out for us at all
3: well the boogeyman character i think well we always had it down uh that um murdoch being him and kind of obviously welch and whatever deal, satanic deal you know the any kind of uh, Faustian contract he had made. He obviously didn't kind of do his bit. So, you know, the powers that be sent something out to to actually forcibly sell, you know, collect his soul, you know. And we were like, well, if he's an immortalist and he can't die and he's being kind of constantly kind of through time, maybe that's how he welched on the contract. So this time they're like, no, we're, 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 we're taking our thing. But, you know... So he gets tracked down by this Boogeyman character, and I, I think there was a character, the Evangelist, as well, who was going to be the Boogeyman. Yeah, the Mennifer. Evangelist
1: is another another big uh, uh, sort of question mark t- point
3: of confusion. I think. I think I think the Evangelist was actually just a very cool name, <laughs> 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 and the, I think I, I think it was just a cool name, and then there was an idea to kind of get all as fans to kind of draw the character, and then. And then that would become what Jamie drew for the character. And I think we vaguely said he was going to be the kind of antidote to the Boogeyman. I kind of think, actually going back, I think the Boogeyman was the character most deaf came up with i you know i think jamie dream well think... there's
1: definitely a connection there's definitely a connection there sun moon and stars most death the boogeyman it's all kind of a connected miasma
3: yeah it's really weird i mean it's it, there's it's like four or five parallel stories all going on and some of them are true and some of them aren't
2: i think you just summed up gorillas like in a nutshell
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe it doesn't matter which ones are true or not, because the fact of the is what's created out of it is uh, is 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 open to interpretation and you know and it's open, you know, to the individual to kind of see how they react and what pictures it paints in their own head.
2: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. I think there's always been a little something kind of frustrating about the way Gorillaz plays so fast and loose with its own continuity. But it, the, another side of it is that it's really just made for, like, a madcap project where you never know what to expect, which is really fun. It's true. It's true.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about uh, that second album that you alluded to. I, You know, that's that's obviously... Probably the thing that 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 people sort of grieve or 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 are most upset about having been lost from the the unfortunate end of phase three. I'm curious, how how what form was that second album in when everything fell apart? Were there titles being kicked around for it? Were there anything approaching a track list? How much recording had been done? You know what? I'm,
3: I'm on that respect. Yeah, I'm not the person to ask. I mean. Uh you'd have to speak to Damon about that. Um I heard I heard some bit and I think I think after I of remember because there was a converse thing wasn't there with um There's do, do your thing. thing yeah. There
1: was also Donk-O-Matic. there was also Donkematic the the non-album single. Yeah,
3: well, Donk-O-Matic came out before the end of the tour because we played it. Uh, it was played on that tour. I think we did a, I did a Spotify um, show with the characters with Murdoch and CD. Yeah, the ten year. I thing. think that's
2: the one thing that we haven't covered for the show, actually. Yeah, that's the last piece of Gorilla's lore
1: that we've been saving. Yeah,
3: it was nice. There was, there was a couple of moments in there that were really like endearing, where kind of Mur- uh, Murdoch and CD were, were, were quite friendly. And I think there was a bit where kind of TV kind of shows him how to um, shows him how he made this drum beat, and it's funny because we recorded Phil and Nelson separately, and myself and Seb Monk had to kind of cut it up to make it seem like they were in the same room, you know, which is something that we had to do a lot but it's really sweet because Murdoch's getting really excited. and goes, Oh, that, that's great. Yeah. You know, he's uh, basically just getting really overexcited. Oh, the shows how to made that beat. That's wonderful. You know, but it's like, he, he gets himself quite sweaty and worked up about it. And it was like, oh, wow. It's just, you know, it was a nice dynamic between them. But on that show, there was, there was, I think we played a load of groove stuff. Um, and there was a track. Oh, maybe it wasn't on there. I don't know. Um, that Crashing Down track, I think that, and it, that got the music from that got used as it was a 30-second bit in one of the idents.
1: Oh yeah, Crashing Down is definitely one of the... That and, and Leviathan, I think, are two tracks that are talked about a lot from those sessions, which I believe was with a band called The Horrors. I, that I, heard that. I
3: was really surprised ones. that David didn't put that on the Classic Beach album, because I thought it was great, but... I think he said something along the lines of kind of that glitter freeze covered the same area for him, so he didn't. So I mean, really? wow.
2: So so instead of Leviathan, oh,
1: we got glitter Jesus. freeze.
2: Just, we got glitter freeze instead of
1: Leviathan.
2: I can imagine that news breaking some people's hearts again. <laughs>
3: When it comes to the music side of it, you've got to speak to Damon because that was, uh, you know, what he did and didn't put out was um, up to him and his own choices. Well, that, that
1: makes me wonder if you've heard about that whole, the whole fan petition, you know, tens of thousands of fans have signed a petition for Damon to put out, you know, some or all of that Lost Phase 3 material. I believe it's called... Uh, Good luck. You know, what do you think? You think it's never going
3: to happen? I have no idea. I I, I haven't seen David for a long while, you know, so I don't know where he's at with with, it. I mean, good luck. There's a lot of petitions that get signed, not all of them are successful.
2: That's (laughs) true. You're not wrong about that. Is there any specific song or material that you might be able to remember from those sessions that you were kind of bummed to see not make it out to the light of day?
3: With a lot. The person was really good. Track. I thought, I thought it was really, really good. I thought the horror sounded great on there, and um, I heard a couple of, I heard some stuff that Dennis had done. That was uh, that one I thought was great. Um, oh, Lost Souls. Slope
2: Tropics, maybe.
3: Maybe it was that, but I can't remember. But I, I don't think it's come out. So <clears throat> also, I wouldn't have known the titles at the time either so right you would have just heard snippet of course yes. yeah. yeah so you know you'd hear a little bit go wow that sounds fucking great you know um I'm, I'm sure in the big scheme of things at some point they'll come out or maybe not or, <laughs> or maybe
2: not really we should just consider ourselves fortunate to have what we do have Um, So, Cass, over the years, there's been so much speculation about what really caused the, like, phase three to end so prematurely. We know Jamin and Damie had a bit of a falling out. There's a lot of talk about issues with the label and finances. And we were just hoping you'd be able to fill in any details that we don't have about, like, how things kind of went south and went wrong. Oh, I don't know.
3: I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, again, it's probably not for me to talk about, but I think... I think, from what I could see, during the plastic beach thing, pivotally, kind of Glastonbury, there was a point where Damon had to go up the front, you know, and he had to engage in the audience. Instead of the the silent kind of theatre aspect of just playing the songs, I think the headline festival this got to a point where he couldn't blank the audience. You know, he had to kind of speak, and, and I think that that kind of... Started to take away from the kind of animated, you know, non-human, the artwork of Jamie's. You can totally understand why Damien had to do that. And I think then after that, Jamie thought some of his stuff wasn't being considered, and maybe Jamie, maybe Damien kind of thought he was having to kind of do a lot more work out front in order to make the thing work. I, I think it's pretty easy to imagine how
2: we're kind of it's it's it almost it almost sounds like they stopped figuring like they stopped figuring out how to adapt gorillas to the changes that needed to be made
3: yeah but then again each phase changed and i'm not in a position to kind of really kind of all what either of them felt you know of course um, not of
1: course not but but you know obviously you were on tour you you saw how things were going i'm curious like by the end of the Plastic Beach Tour, was the writing kind of already on the wall in terms of things are not going so great inside of the partnership, or was it after that things really
3: came apart? Hey, listen, I I don't know, because those two were always bickering. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I didn't see any difference. and Maybe Jamie just needed a bit of time off, or maybe Damon wanted to. A- you know, do the other things and you know, that you wanted to do, and maybe there was just uh, a kind of we need a rest, you know. And Jamie moved to France as well, you know, so uh, that probably kind of didn't speed up reconnections. Do bear in mind that kind of uh, one of the best things about the origin and the original purpose of the cartoon band was that human bands are fucking nightmares. <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah, of course. And and as soon as you bring the humanity back into it, suddenly you kind of, you know, there there comes all the other demons floating behind. You know? Yeah, of course,
1: of course. If only if only the four real members could just take over, right? Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I think the last work you did for the project was the Do You Thing, the run up to the Do You Thing campaign. Is that
3: correct? Uh, no. Um, I think the singles was after that, wasn't it? Oh, I definitely did have a whole bunch of stuff for the singles. Um, I can't remember if, if there was a proper kind of story. I, I remember the Converse one. He, he, he Murdoch was just kind of had broken into Andre Thousand's house, yeah, yeah, and stolen this stuff, and it, and it was it was uh, basically. Like he dressed like the guy from the milk tray advert, and you know, which uh, the kind of Tom Cruise. Because if you're going to break into someone's house, that's traditionally what you wear. And it was very kind of very Pink Panther esque, you know. I don't know about singles. I think I think that was more kind of a regular band thing, where the the characters just kind of um, <clears throat> review their own records and uh, you know chose their top ten five. Videos, whatever you know, so it was it was more kind of that was, that was more kind of regular. I don't think there was a there was a big narrative story to that so was the feeling was the feeling writing for the
1: for the band in those kind of post plastic beach things kind of like you know, because at that point officially the 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 the, part, the project was not really active in the in the traditional sense of the word. Was it different to try to write for the band while things were kind of up in the air, or maybe Damon's not doing as much, or Jamie's kind of taking over this thing? Was that was that
3: a, a different kind of vibe? Uh, yeah, there was a little. You know, so some of it felt like you know just tying up lace and doing up buttons and just it. it you know, it kind of felt... Because those two weren't really talking at the time, so it was um, didn't feel like in the spirit of, uh, of gorillas, which is, you know, entirely collaborative. And, you know, there was so much kind of joy in, involved and in creative kind of joy and in different ways of doing it. And, um, yeah. Yeah, it did feel different. And that's probably the last thing I was involved in. So,
1: um, yeah. I feel like... In the fandom, we kind of, we try to think of the whole partnership as this, like, this loving family, and and there's definitely been a lot of reconciliation of everything uh, since the project kind of got started again in 2016, 2017, but obviously there's there's one major absence from the family, and... I guess that leaves me to kind of ask: Where do you stand with with Jamie, with Damon on a on a hello, personal hello. level?
3: Uh, the line's gone crackly. I can't. I can't hear you. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> what? I do not believe this. It's got a botanic, <laughs> I can't hear you. Are you heading for a tunnel? <laughs> yep. Yep. Sorry, I've got to go and put some clothes on now. Um. Um. <laughs> uh, what? Nah, I don't know. I haven't seen I ain't seen them for a while. So myself and Jamie worked on another film thing and um it didn't work out. And I think we probably needed a break at that time. But um yeah, well, no, I just haven't really I, I, I again I generally have no idea whether at with that side of the characters or if there is or isn't a story or, you know, who's doing what because Maybe, maybe as I said, you know, each, each phase that they have, they kind of uh, they switched up and put more onus and focus on something else, and uh, you know, the, the sound of the album changed and the sound of the band changed, and you know, maybe they didn't want the characters to be that vocal, or maybe they do because, hand on heart, I don't, I don't really know where it's at. So, you know, I'm kind of. Um, I'm focusing very much on the bands I'm doing at the moment, so of which I'm in about five, so there's not really Yeah, enough. you're very
1: active, yeah. and you, you're doing some amazing things, but I, I gotta say, Cass, as a Gorillaz fan, it's a crippling
2: absence. Like, you feel, <laughs> things, you feel... Things just aren't the same without you.
3: Well, I appreciate you saying that. You know, it's nice. It's nice to leave a little shadow somewhere. <laughs> and, uh... I don't know. You know, we'll see how that happens. Maybe, maybe at some point they'll they'll want that again. Maybe they don't want to go down that route. Maybe Garuda's is iced for another ten years, as they say. Uh, maybe it's not. I hear kind of, you know, Damon said that pretty well at the end of every phase. So a little bit, yeah.
1: I smell a new fan petition, Cass. I smell a new fan petition to, <laughs> to bring to bring Cass back for Facebook. Well, uh, come said, on, let's get good luck with that. And
3: not all petitions work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. will see. We'll see. It's been lovely talking. Um, I've actually I'm actually late for a rehearsal. Oh, uh, so
1: Peng- of course. For for I'm assuming for Circle Sixty, your new band, correct? That was last night. Uh, today I'm with uh, Penguin Cafe. Um, You're too busy, Cass. But I want to talk to you soon. I want to talk to you very soon about a project with another uh, important piece of Gorillaz personnel, Morgan Nichols, that you have called Circle 60. Now, I don't want to give too much away, but I assume that we'll be talking to you again uh, on the horizon about that project. And i got to tell you, I'm very
3: excited. Yeah, we can't wait for that. I'd love to. I'd love to. I'm really excited for the record. uh, I think it sounds amazing. I recorded my parts really fast with that, maybe two three days, and it's come out amazing. And we argued about the artwork for about nine months. As I said before, you know, <laughs> fucking band, band. Everyone, everyone's like, yeah, it sounds great, but what does the logo look like? So I'm getting fucking so Jesus okay? Christ. you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. the The amount of different, <laughs> <laughs> the, the amount of different people and and, and images that we went to. And as you know, um. Tim Watkins, Rockins, he, he eventually kind of, we went to see him and went, look, we've got this idea. I'd done a sleeve and, you know, Morgan had done some and some other guys had done some and sort of stopped one guy in the street and said, could you draw us a cover? And he drew that. And, um, you know, we just went through what we could, but uh, eventually kind of, uh, it turned out that myself and the guitarist, uh, Des, who was with me in Delico, he plays with me in, Um, Penguin Cafe as well and um, it turned out that fundamentally I was really into kind of maximalist collage, loss of mess, paint splatters, just cut and paste stuff and he really likes nice clean logos like the pill image and I went I now see why we're fighting because we haven't realized that neither of us likes what the other's into you know and so we gave that remit to Tim, okay, so it's got to be really clean, really precise, but with loads of mess and loads of paint splatters and this and that. And uh, he kind of just went, how about this? And he came up with something that was... Great, I think
2: I, I think I've I love with... I love all the visual stuff that's come out for Circle Sixty so yeah, far. Yeah, the project has a really cool aesthetic. Cass, it's been great talking to you. It's been a real surreal pleasure to have you on the show. Before we let you go, I just want to ask you one last quick big picture question. Obviously, you spent so much time with the band. Uh, we were just wondering when you look back on like the more than a decade you spent working with Gorillaz, when were you the happiest?
3: When was I the happiest? I think the very first. Album and that period was just really. It was really liberating. No one knew what was going to come up. You know, everyone was kind of chucking ideas around, and you know, it was great putting that live band together. I thought that the, the album sounded great. The sky was the limit. Yeah, well, it, it kind of felt like that, and um, and it was like, well, you know, you didn't didn't really know where these things were going, and everyone was kind of scrambling, and in terms of kind of giving, you know, working on each other's stuff but giving each other space and that was really nice and I really like that, it seemed, you know, yeah, there was loads of, loads and loads of really good points, I mean, I think emotionally, the, the thing that really sticks out in my head is playing Syria, I, uh, I wouldn't say I was the happiest, but, but in, in terms of all the things I look back and go, that was that was really something, you know, I was uh, I was kind of very tearful when uh, when we left there actually and you kind of, you can see, see something on the horizon, very much so, yeah. But I've got a million good memories, so I'll put them in a book one day.
2: <laughs> well, we can't wait to read it. Cash Brown,
1: thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your stories. You are, you are
2: a national treasure, pal. <laughs> this project would not have been the same without you. Take care. I'll speak to you soon, yeah? See you again for Circle 60. Cheers, Cass. Definitely. I'll drop you a line.
1: Oh, Trevor, the prodigal son—he came
2: back to us. He did. He, we welcomed him back with open arms, and he showed up with so many little gorilla's treats, didn't he?
1: Some things that I've just—I've ne- been unable to get out of my mind. I mean, I think, I think obviously him rattling off the chapters of the book of man is sort of an unforgettable thing oh my i i
2: i could basically hear that in murdoch's voice doing it in like the the pirate radio kind of format too you know
1: and you know the the thing that i've really been unable to get out of my head was when he just started rattling off kind of who the four band members are to him and the balance they have between
2: oh yeah it felt it felt wild to be getting that description of those guys from somebody who's put so much blood sweat and tears into them you know like, who knows them better than Cass Brown?
1: Exactly. That was, like, the illustrative point of, like, this is why Cass was the best at writing this band. Because he's,
2: mm-hmm.
1: he just has this intimate understanding of those four characters. And it was just, ah.
2: He is gorillas.
1: Yeah, and I mean the fucking boil on your head being the gorillas movie. There's just so that much was in there. That wild. I
2: can't believe the way they were able to incorporate that into Rise of the Ogre. I'll, I'll never think about that section of the book the same way again.
1: But then there's maybe, there's maybe nothing I'm more proud of than to have unleashed the information onto the fandom that the reason they don't have Leviathan featuring the horrors is because they got Glitter Freeze instead.
2: Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Had to fit Marky Smith in there. No matter who you had to cut out. So fucking funny. Just one more thing to, like, lay against that song.
1: Okay, uh... So we touched on this at the end of that interview, but Cass has a new band now with fellow Gorillaz alum, Morgan Nichols.
2: Right, who they named Murdoch Nichols after.
1: Yes, after whom Murdoch gets his name. And it's this really dope fucking kind of Buzzcocks, uh, uh, psychedelic British rock punk band called Section 60, you and I are actually kind of in the writing and research phase of a of a review of that that's going to be a very special, we're going to do something very special for that. That's going to come out towards the beginning of the year. But their their big debut show as Section 60 is actually happening in like a little over a week from when this episode goes up, if you're listening to this now, it's the 19th of December, uh, the venue is Bush Hall in London, England.
2: So if you're around, go see it. Well, I
1: was going to propose something even more special than that. So if you go right now in your web browser to com it will take you to a page that's got the link to those tickets. If you are within traveling distance of London, if you buy a ticket to this show, and if you travel to that show get photographic evidence of you being there with one Cash Brown. I would recommend bothering him and saying, hi, I'm from, I'm a Hallelujah Monkeys listener, because I'm sure he'll talk to you about whatever you want. Then send me that th- send me that evidence. What I will do is I will give you a download of the full first season of Patreon exclusive episodes of the Patreonkeys Club.
2: Oh, cool. Very, very, very nice. That's
1: what I'm prepared to do for you today. If you'll sort of harangue Cass Brown and Morgan Nichols at that show to represent uh, Hallelujah Monkeys, that would make me feel very good.
2: That'd be very exciting. I I hope we do see some turnout. Me too. Me too, Dylan. What a success, though. I mean, did you did could you have ever thought when we started this podcast that we would be sitting down with the author of Rise of the Ogre and We Are the Dory and so many other great gorillas interviews?
1: Fuck no, fuck no. I mean, you know, Cass, you and I have said this kind of individually. I mean, obviously, there's there's the allure of the of the Jamie or the Damon interview as being like a final boss of this podcast or something. Of course, yeah. But I think for you and me personally. If if you if we had our choice, it had to be Cass or Jamie or Damon. It would be Cass every time. With right? a
2: bullet, I mean, yeah, absolutely. He's it wouldn't, the, he's, I, I wouldn't even have to think about it.
1: That was such a wonderful sit down, and I and I you know I I suspect you'll see Cass around these parts again soon. And he's just a he's just a genuine and lovely guy. And the project aches. In his absence, I mean, i I think the end of that podcast made me feel as most hope as I've ever felt that like maybe someday there will be a gorillas with the full brain trust again.
2: phase six. Let's make it happen.
1: looms large in my heart and in my mind
2: let's get the, let's get the band back together guys
1: and let's tell our listeners to go check out halllujahmonkeys dot com for all of our links and the discord and the the patreon and whatnot. Don't forget also to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever so that... You know, we pop up a little higher in the search. That would always be
2: helpful. Yeah, the more you guys let us know how much you appreciate us doing cool stuff like this, the more cool stuff we can do.
1: And be sure to follow my friend and co-host Trevor Ickrath on Twitter to find out who he eventually decides to main in the new Super Smash Brothers game at trvrkrth. That's Trevor Ickrath with all the vowels taken out.
2: And follow my good friend Dylan Flynn on Twitter uh, to find out uh, his next seasonally uh, event-appropriate username based on his name at uh, D-I-L-L-O-N Flynn. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, that's it, Trevor. I guess that, that brings us to the
1: end of this epic sort of Everest-scaling episode.
2: Yeah, and, and kind of this Everest-scaling sequence of Halloween Monkeys. This has been quite a run that we've been on, hasn't it, lately?
1: It is, it is. And And believe it or not, we do have some more things on the books that i think you'll be quite interested in
2: totally and i'm also looking forward to you know getting back to our mainline program and sitting down very soon to talk about most deafs uh black on both sides
1: it'll be nice to just sit down and review a record without having to deal with another
2: famous person right it'll be so nice <laughs> to just get back to basics you and me sitting down talking about some tracks
1: can't wait can't wait for whatever the the next year of lovely content has in store for this show and can't wait to see your pictures your trip reports uh if you go to that that section 60 show remember I'm
2: really looking forward to seeing those until then i have been trevor ikrath
1: i've been dylan flynn
2: don't get lost in heaven
1: demo